Chapter Three of Blake of the Rattlesnake. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Blake of the Rattlesnake by Frederick T. Jane. Chapter Three: The Rescue of a Sweetheart. I joined the Rattlesnake on August 19th, just after the Battle of Cherbourg. The Ratto, as we called her in the service, was a torpedo-catcher of 550 tons displacement, carrying one four-inch quick-firing gun and six three-pounder quick-firers. The four-inch was only put in position when they hastily fitted the ship for sea. She had previously carried an ordinary four-inch breech-loading gun. Her horsepower was 2,700, which gave a nominal speed of not more than 19 knots, but she could make about that in all weathers, and so was practically one of the best ships in the service for speed, while her engines had never broken down in any way. The vessels of the Havoc class were indeed far swifter, but they were not so sea-going as the good old Ratto. Lieutenant Blake was a man full of pet ideas about everything and when I joined, some of these had been put into execution. Around the guns he had piled sandbags. Chains had been slung over the sides amidships, while over guns and everything hung a light awning, the object of which I was at a loss to conceive, till the captain explained that, in his opinion, men would fight with more assurance under cover, and that even this slight awning gave a feeling of protection that would be valuable in action." Our complement, all told, was seventy. We acted as a sort of division boat to three torpedo boats, numbers eighty-two, eighty-four, and eighty-six, respectively. If these went out to seek the enemy, we were to accompany them, and either lead the attack, or lie a bit astern as a protection and rallying point, as the case might need. Should we be employed in protecting a fleet, two boats were to keep with us while the third coaled. This arrangement was a compromise to those who held that the torpedo boat was the proper answer to the torpedo boat, and looking back at it all after the lapse of years, I think it was about the best thing. The new catchers of the Havoc type came in very handy for this sort of work, but there were not enough of them ready for sea, when war broke out, to do all the work required. Practically one was needed for every ironclad. Now it is all over. It does seem a thousand pities that they didn't send a big fleet of catchers and torpedo-boats into Cherbourg. Going en masse, we'd have got in somehow, and done for the lot of them, though likely enough nobody would have come out of it. Still, we were ready and willing to try it, had they only given us the chance. Instead of that, most of us nursed the battleships, and did nothing." It must not be supposed that we had an easy time of it, however. Scouting for torpedo-boats was arduous work, and none the less so because nothing, at first, came in our way. The night the Empress of India was torpedoed, for instance, we were entirely out of it, and did not see a single hostile boat, though several were about. We had all the monotony of looking for boats without the excitement of chasing them. That first week or so of the war was an anxious time for those who had relatives and friends at sea, for the enemy's cruisers were then playing Old Harry with the merchant service, 
and numberless ships and liners were overdue. One of the newspapers had a terribly pathetic article about the people waiting, waiting, waiting at the piers and places where the steamers used to come in in peacetime, and of how they went on watching day after day, night after night, for the ships that never came, and never would come now. Save for an occasional warship going in or out of harbour, the waters were as deserted as the ocean in the ancient mariner. No man felt more keenly about these missing merchantmen than our skipper, since the girl he was engaged to was homeward bound in the Valletta, which had left Jib just before the declaration of war. The Valletta was a fastish boat, subsidized by the Admiralty, and her captain reckoned on getting into port before war broke out. Though likely enough he didn't expect it to happen at all, no one did, for the matter of that. She was more than a week overdue now, and the chances of her safe arrival were getting infinitesimal. It must have come as a relief to the skipper when we were sent to sea to cruise independently, instead of the everlasting patrolling round the fleet. Our orders were to scout down channel, capture any inferior craft we might encounter, but carefully avoid an engagement with the superior force. This we could easily do, as, if necessary, we were able to show a clean pair of heels to most things afloat, certainly to any ship likely to be able to damage us. "'Show heels be damned!' said Blake, as he read the slate. "'The French have a darn sight too many cruisers, and if we meet one, I'll try and find out whether the Ratto can't give her Beano.' And in this spirit we weighed and put to sea. It was a trying moment all the same. The possibilities of the future seemed so much nearer and greater in a small ship. In a big ironclad, one has so many messmates and creature comforts that one leaves the future to look after itself. But in a frail little craft like the Ratto, well, I couldn't contemplate going into action without wondering whether anyone could possibly survive and I experienced all sorts of sensations that had been foreign to me in the poor old Nelson. "'Feeling a bit blue, eh, old man?' remarked Blake, who was inspecting the conning tower as I came off the forecastle, where I had lingered a bit after getting up anchor. "'Well, sir,' I made reply, "'one does feel a bit sick at the thought of never seeing home and dear ones again.' Of course, a fellow is prepared to do his duty and all that, but, as you yourself said in the Nelson, there's precious small chance of anyone coming out of it. For, to tell the truth, I was in a devil of a funk. Well, that's merely one way of looking at it. For my own part, I'm also one of those fatalistic Johnnies who hold that a man can't die before his time, do what he will. Though, he added in a sadder tone, "'Maybe there are times when one wishes it would come along.' Then, as his manner was, he left me abruptly, going up on the bridge, while I went below and fell in with the doctor, who was fresh from Haslar, and a mighty enthusiast. He had the wardroom table covered with murderous-looking knives and instruments, the different uses of which he was explaining to our engineer. "'I'll tell you what, my son,' he was saying, "'You'll bless me by and by, all of you. "'I've brought a private stock of chloroform, "'for the Admiralty only allow about enough for one operation.' "'Poor little blue-eyed doctor, with his saws and anaesthetics. 
He never got a chance to use them. We thought him rather an officious little ass, then, yet he proved himself a hero when he died. We steered in a bee-line for Plymouth, altering course near the Eddystone about five hours later. A white fog had been coming on, and near to sunset time it was so thick that we had to reduce speed to six knots or thereabouts. As we were thus going along we heard the sound of distant firing, and, cracking on full speed, the ratto made in the direction whence it seemed to proceed. The noise rapidly increased in volume, but we were unable to locate it, when suddenly the fog lifted, and there, right ahead of us, crimson in the setting sun, were a couple of ships firing at each other. It was the first sea-fight I had ever seen, and the impression of it is as vivid in my memory as though it were yesterday. Two black ships, one of them apparently our warspit, near together, slowly following each other round and round in a circle. From their sides and tops came incessant flashes, a thin film of smoke from the cordite ammunition wreathed and twisted astern of them, while under the warspit's quarter lay a second-class torpedo-boat, following her motions, and presumably waiting for an opportunity to slip out and torpedo the enemy's vessel. Long before we could reach them, the fog curtain came down again thicker than ever, so that they were lost to our ken, and, night having fallen, we were unable to find them, although the sound of firing continued for another half-hour, when it suddenly ceased. By and by the fog lifted once again, but we saw nothing more of the ships, though we passed the early part of the night cruising as near as we could guess in the same place. Then— Giving it up as a bad job, we went on our way. Once we sighted a cruiser, but she turned out to be a friend. This was just as I came on the bridge to take the morning watch for the skipper, who, having been on the bridge since six o'clock on the previous night, turned in all standing for a short rest. We saw nothing more till about three bells. Then our lookout notified a large merchantman steaming hard on the port bow, and I altered course in her direction. Before we had neared her appreciably, and ere she had noticed us, I fancy, a warship loomed up in pursuit, and even as we looked there came a fire-tongue from her bow, followed by a splash in the water ahead of the first steamer, which replied with a gun mounted somewhere aft, and at the same time ran up the British blue ensign. A second shell from the pursuer burst in the merchantmen amidships, and must have damaged her, for though she still steamed on, her speed was much reduced. At the first alarm I had, of course, had the skipper called, and the crew were all at quarters in less than no time. The excitement was intense. Blake, who had been intently watching the steamer through his binoculars, laid them down with a hoarse cry. "'Good God! It is the Valletta! Lucy! Lucy! How we meet again!' The enemy, the French Davou, was now rapidly coming up, firing ever and again at the Valletta, which replied irregularly and without any effect so far as we could make out. The Davou, a protected cruiser of over three thousand tons, carried fourteen guns of sorts to our seven. She had six sixteen-centimeter guns against our solitary long-tom, so that it appeared little less than suicidal for us to attack her, but the traditions of the British Navy demanded that we should do so. Probably this reason counted second with our skipper, 
fate had placed it in his power to strike a blow for the woman he loved, and confident in his preconceived plans, he went into action with a light heart. Hitherto the Davu had taken absolutely no notice of us. In our disguise she probably took us for a collier tramp who could be picked up afterwards at leisure. But a shot from our long tom as she came into range undeceived her. Before she had recovered her surprise, we were pretty well out of reach, and the broadside she sent in our direction did no damage. "'It won't be possible to play that game again,' said Blake. "'I guess that shell of ours made things hum.' The captain of the Davu seemed undecided whether to continue the pursuit of the Valletta, or to turn aside first and destroy the puny antagonist astern of him. He must have leant towards the latter course, for he slowed down, thus enabling the merchantman to get out of range, but not before another French shell had hit her, and we clenched our teeth in anger, as we thought of the terrible havoc that missile must have wrought on the decks crowded with defenceless passengers. "'By God, you shall pay for this!' muttered Blake, as he himself trained our four-inch gun upon the cruiser. "'Fire!' The shell struck the enemy, which, in stopping to turn, had just come into range again, and burst somewhere forward, but we could not see what damage we had done. She still continued to turn as before, letting fly a broadside of three guns at us as she did so. Bow on as we were, the target we offered was exceedingly small, and none of the projectiles hit us though we felt the wind of one that passed overhead. "'Every man under cover!' yelled the skipper, and going into the conning-tower he put the helm hard aport, using the screws to assist him to turn. But before the rattlesnake had quite got round, a shell from the enemy hit us somewhere astern, bursting against the base of the mainmast, which it brought down, and wrecking the steward's pantry and engineer's cabin.' A minute or two later we were out of dangerous range, and I was sent below to report damage. On the floor of the wardroom, amidst the wreckage, lay the doctor, wounded unto death, and near him the sick-bay man, moaning in agony, his right leg shattered to a bloody pulp. As I crawled over the debris, the doctor opened his eyes, and, struggling on his knees towards some bandages and instruments, asked me in a voice little more than a faint whisper to bring the wounded man to him. Poor chap! It was his last effort. Even as he made it, he fell back with a rattle in his throat, and died. Calling a couple of hands, I made the wounded sick-bay man as comfortable as we could, under the circumstances, which I am afraid was not much. But since we all expected to join the doctor in a few minutes, it didn't seem to matter much for none of us had much faith in the captain's plan. Discovering that he could not get within range of us, although nominally a knot faster in speed, the Davu again slowed down, presumably hoping to entice us within reach. Again we turned, facing the enemy bow to bow. All this time our ship had been getting more and more round to the eastward, and just before turning I noticed the sky ahead of us a glorious glow of colour, the golden edge of the sun lifting above the inky black water as we circled round. Finding that we were not to be drawn nearer, the enemy commenced to go about again, evidently intent on pursuing the Valletta, which was still well in sight. "'Stand by the starboard torpedo-tube yourself,' 
Bovary, sang out the skipper to me, and fire when I give the word. You will hear me yell to you from the conning tower, but of course if anything unforeseen happens, you must use your own judgment. I am going down to torpedo her in the path of the sun. Everyone else under cover, and lie down, every man jack of you. Go ahead as fast as you can, I heard him yell down the tube to the engine room a minute later. We had a tremendous head of steam, and our speed must have been quite twenty miles an hour. Reckoning the enemy to be about eight thousand yards off, it would take us some fifteen minutes or less to get within torpedo distance of her, and then— The sun, dead astern of us, was now just above the horizon, and his golden rays tipped the foam and mist that clung about our shrouds till they seemed bespangled with glittering jewels. The rigging hummed with the wind of our rush. The engines throbbed and palpitated till I could scarce hold on to the torpedo-tube. But I thought of none of these things. Instead thereof I seemed to see another morning a fortnight or so ago, with the same sun just rising, and catching on a girl's white dress as she stood on the landing-stage at Milford, waving a handkerchief to a steam-launch, dashing away down harbour to the Nelson. All else passed from me, and as in a dream I heard the pattering of machine-gun bullets and the wild screech and splash of the shell. Then a cry from somewhere, "'Look out, starboard torpedo-tube!' brought me to myself again. We gave a great swerve to port. Ahead of me over the low bulwarks I saw a huge hull wreathed in smoke and flashes, shining and glimmering in the sunshine, like a great gold mirror set up in the sea. A moment later I had her in the sights of the director. The torpedo flashed out. The noise of the firing ended itself in a mighty roar, and a wave that broke over our bulwarks and set everything awash. Then came a sudden, unnatural calm. I struggled to my feet to look astern, being almost knocked over, as I did so, by the rush of blue jackets to man the QF guns. But there was no need to use them, for the Davout would fire her guns never more. The cruiser had her nose under water, and with propellers wildly splashing in the air, slowly went over on her side. We had described a sort of semicircle, meanwhile. She was now only a cable or so distant from us. Some of the crew we could see frantically trying to get out boats. A white flag was being waved to us, and hands stretched out appealingly. Nearer yet we drew, till we could look upon their faces. Hardy Breton seamen jumping into the sea. Slowly the great ship went down, her struggling burden crowding her hull, beseeching for aid that came not. "'For God's sake, sir, send them a boat!' cried I to Blake, who was now standing on the bridge watching the sinking vessel. "'What can we do? We cannot risk having all those prisoners aboard us. We can leave them such of our boats as will swim, after the ship has gone down. Till then we can do nothing.' And indeed, it was only too true. We could not crowd our decks with prisoners who would be twenty to one against our little deck-watch, nor could we even approach nearer without grave risk of being sucked down by the foundering Davout. Presently, with a great explosion in one awful cry of agony, she went down, and then we steamed over the spot. We lowered the only two boats that would swim. These we had just turned outwards with considerable difficulty— into the struggling mass of men and deck-hamper. 
numbers clutched at our rungs and the bits of chain and rope that hung from the ship's sides, praying us for the love of God to save them, and some few of these we hauled on board, but the greater number we had to leave to their fate. Then, and not till then, did we notice the Valetta, which, under slight sail, had drifted down to us before the wind. Her engines were apparently disabled, and, judging from the streams of water that spurted from her sides, she was leaking badly as well. We got up within hail of her, and these must have been anxious moments for our skipper, as he eagerly scanned the faces of the passengers who crowded her decks, gazing on the horrible sequel to their deliverance. "'Can you keep afloat?' hailed our skipper. "'I think so, but our engines are disabled. Can you take us in tow, sir?' "'Very good. Is Miss Monkton safe?' "'Who?' "'Miss Monkton, passenger, General Monkton's daughter.' The answer was indistinct, and as we steamed up yet nearer, Blake ordered out the dinghy, which had luckily escaped destruction when the mainmast fell. He was over the side waiting for it almost before it touched the water, calling to me to come with him. "'Steer the boat, Bovary,' he said. "'My nerves are all ajar.' Look here, you arrange with these fellows about towing and so forth, while I go and see what has happened. Miss Monkton is, or perhaps was, to be my wife. I made no answer, thinking it better so, and in silence we went on board. A grey-bearded captain came forward to meet us as we came up the Valletta's side. The other officers were drawn up in a group to honour us, but Blake scarcely saw any of this. He rushed, rather than walked, through the crowd of passengers towards an old gentleman of military appearance, who was trying to force his way in our direction. I could not hear what was said, being too far away, but from their motions I could guess that it was no good news, and presently, with bowed head, my skipper followed the old general below. The towing arrangements were soon seen to, but before they were finished, Blake came on deck again with a white, set face, and silently taking his place in the dinghy, we returned to the rattlesnake without any reference to what had occurred on board the Valletta. Shortly afterwards, a hawser having been got out, we slowly made our way to Plymouth with the huge liner in our wake, reaching that port without further adventure, save falling in with a couple of our own cruisers. These went on to look for the unfortunate crew of the Davout, some forty or more of whom were found crowded into our two boats, or clinging to bits of deck-hamper, where they had been about twelve hours when rescued. At Plymouth we parted company with the Valletta, which we left inside the breakwater. We ourselves were told to proceed at once to Portland, where a sort of floating dockyard had been set up for small repairs, the yards at Devonport and Keyham being already full to overflowing with ships fitting for sea or repairing after actions in which they had been engaged. As soon as we had anchored inside Portland Breakwater, nature asserted herself, and we all fell asleep, leaving our ship in charge of a party from the Blenheim, who saw to our wounded, and the next morning we got alongside one of the dockyard steamers, whence a strong batch of carpenters and artificers came on board to put things to rights. All things considered, we had suffered very slightly— Besides the doctor, we had only lost seven men killed, and thirteen were wounded, most of these but slightly. 
the tempest of fire under which we had charged had mostly passed over and around us coming bow on with the blazing sun behind us we had made a very small and difficult target if indeed the gunners were able to see us in the glare machine-gun bullets had riddled our boats and top hamper but beyond the shell which killed the doctor no big shot had hit us and the holes where the machine-gun fire had penetrated our sides at the moment when we swerved to discharge the torpedo were not so very numerous blake's chain defence had done its work well we heard later from the prisoners brought in by the cruisers that the davus people fancied we were trying to either ram them or get rammed after the fashion set by jalki and they had prepared a warm reception for us had we done so it seemed that they also eased off a torpedo at us but it either went under our bottom or missed altogether as for the valetta her history was a series of hair-breadth escapes from the day she left gibraltar chased by a french cruiser in the bay of biscay she had made for the atlantic and given her pursuer the slip then headed off by another had been driven southward toward the azores where a lucky shot from one of the six-inch guns she carried on her poop had disabled this antagonist coaling at san miguel she struck homewards again keeping well out in the atlantic for french cruisers swarmed like bees off the spanish coast and she had got along all right till our eventful meeting with her off the sillies the davu had come up in the night from an opposite direction still the valetta was hoping to outsteam her but the frenchmen were within range and firing at her engines the rest has been already told save that some five of her crew and twelve passengers were killed and nearly thirty wounded by the enemy's shells miss monckton's name appeared in the list of the slightly wounded able to proceed to their homes so we were at a loss to account for the state of mind the skipper was in whatever it was he was a changed man and though thoughtful of his crew as ever he now did his duty mechanically and wearily his old enthusiasm for the time at any rate was lost i suppose she's jilted him poor beggar remarked lawson my fellow sub as we went ashore that afternoon to see about some fresh provisions and i was inclined to agree with him on the morrow we buried the doctor on shore the service being read by a white-headed old clergyman whose voice every now and then broke down in sobs and by his side was a lady equally aged who clutched his arm as he read the solemn words they were his father and mother and it was thus that they buried their only son End of chapter.